Guardian Unlimited. Guardian Unlimited. The Rugby World Cup Show. Sponsored by Magnus. Time to play. Go to magnuscider.com. Well, hello once again for the final time. I'm Ian Payne and once again we're at the uh, Bowler Pub just off the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Beautiful Paris morning. The day after, the night before, the night before being, of course, the Rugby World Cup final. This is the Guardian Rugby World Cup show via podcast, the very last one. Uh, it wasn't pretty, it wasn't beautiful. Um, we're talking about the match, of course. It's still a great battle. Congratulations to the worthy winners, I think we should say. The only team who didn't lose a game in the entire tournament. South Africa, world champions for a second time. And as for England, not quite sure what to make of the uh, English feeling this morning. Strange disappointment, I suppose. Everyone bitterly sad that they didn't win, particularly after that build-up. But I think, generally, people can't really believe that they got to the final. And I wonder if it's as painful as losing is normally. We'll ask our guests, because I'm joined by a whole host of them, to dissect both the final and the tournament as a whole, look back, look forward, and as always, we would like your input. And all you've got to do to do that is to go to blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport that's all you have to do. I'm going to actually start in an unspectacular and rather bizarre manner by reading out a blog that came to us overnight. Um, and this is from Rocco La Jocco, who said, On Monday, the 22nd of October, a man walked into the RFU offices in Twickenham and said, I'd like to see the uh, Webb Ellis Trophy, please, he said to the attendant. I'm afraid it's not here, sir. You'll have to go to South Africa to see it. The next day, the same man walked into the RFU offices in Twickenham. I'd like to see the Webb Ellis Trophy, please, to the attendant. attendant, as polite as ever, said, I'm afraid it's not here, sir. You'll have to go to South Africa to see it. And this continued every day for several weeks until the kindly attendant finally lost his rag. Look, it's not here, for God's sake. Are you an idiot? It's in South Africa. Yes, I know, says the man in a soft Highland accent. Just like hearing you say it. Uh, <laughs> I suppose, in the end... Rob Kitson, who's uh, with us from the uh, the Guardian. Rob, um, I'll introduce all of you first of all. Rob Kitson's from the Guardian. Uh, Andy Bull is with us from Guardian Unlimited, and also from New Zealand's Radio Live. Chris Forster. Uh, Rob, in the end, what is the English feeling? Well, I suppose it's unaccustomed slightly, isn't it? Because <laughs> last time everybody got so used to it being yeah, the wonderful day that it was in Sydney. This time, I mean, as you rightly say, they weren't expecting necessarily it to happen. It was, it was hope, wasn't it, rather than expectation. I, I, it is a strange one. I think you've got to take the tournament as a whole. You've got to say, look, six weeks ago, would you have expected England to be in the final? No chance. Absolutely no chance. Certainly not after the South African game. 36 nil, 36 days ago, you know, it's been a heck of a turnaround. So for, for, for that reason alone, You've got to take your hats off to England, despite the result last night. Mm. Deserved winners, South Africa, of the tournament as a whole, as well as the match. I thought so. I mean, I probably <laughs> probably would say that. Having I did, I did tip them. I know you don't believe me, no, but no, I did no. tip them in print uh, to win the tournament. And there aren't many in England who've done that. So I, I'm not going to be boastful because that's uh, not the sort of thing you should do. But you're absolutely right. Uh, I, South Africa did deserve their their, their win. They've they've got four or five of the best players in the world in their positions, and that always helps if you're going to make a. Uh, a world, uh, a world-class side, or a, a win a World Cup, and that's the, uh, you know, that told in the end, I think. Yeah, we'll analyse the the match in a little bit more detail in just a second. Um, from New Zealand's Radio Live, Chris Forster is here. Welcome, Chris. Bonjour. W- uh, bonjour. Um, from a neutral point of view, what did you make of the final? Pretty dull, really. Uh, I mean, I uh, pretty dull, really, because uh, there was just uh, two sides playing to win. Uh, using fairly negative uh, kicking tactics, but we've seen a lot of that in the tournament. Uh, South Africa had, as 
as my colleague has just pointed out, have a lot of attacking weapons, but they, they got their noses in front. And I'm going to try and say this uh, on, on, a, on a live podcast, mm. out Englanded England, yes, uh, with the, which is a, not, not a particularly ugly phrase, but they, they just um, they, they just played the percentages, uh, particularly in that last 15 minutes when fr- after Francois Stein knocked over a pretty good sort of penalty, you, dubious penalty. But you can't criticise two sides for going out and winning, can you? I mean, what are, no. they, what are they supposed to do? Go out and try and both sides try and exactly. lose? I mean, you know, they they. Uh, count, counterattacking rugby seems to have gone out the window. Well, New Zealand's good at it, but it didn't work for us, did it? In the end. I think you've got to look at... It. Well, you didn't drop a goal. That's what you needed to do at the end. I don't know why you didn't. But anyway, we'll come to New Zealand in a second. Let me bring in the, the third of our triumvirate, uh, Andy Bull, who's from Guardian Unlimited. What's your feeling today as an England fan? And what's the general mood, do you think? Uh, I feel like a pig shat in my head. Do you? Yeah. Why? <laughs> Late night out. <laughs> yeah, pretty much that. But, and uh, as far as the rugby's concerned, have you got any comment on that? As far as the rugby, I'm, just uh, the I'm pretty, pretty damn disappointed, to be honest. I think a lot of England fans will be. It's fine to say we can be happy they got to the final. We're proud of them for getting to the final. But the expectation in that last week was huge. Let's not kid ourselves. We really all thought they had a good chance of winning that. Did we? Well, I think the country did, yeah. Maybe the experts, Rob, such as my we? man Rob Kitson here, didn't. But well, uh, I didn't. I must admit, I didn't. And I, you know, I'm a layman. I, I love rugby, but I wouldn't confess to be an absolute expert. No, they, had, I, they, I had a, they had a I'm chance. A I mean, the fan. players thought they had a chance, which is the important yeah. thing. And they, you, that, that you can't deny that. They all felt they'd been in this position before, and they thought that experience would make the difference. Now, it, it didn't happen. Uh, there are several reasons for that. One being that South Africa are a pretty tough side to break down. Two, England, in the end, didn't play quite as well as they, as they could have done but to answer your question they did they did have a chance but not a you know by no means favorites or anything like that right let's get the view round the table um the try that wasn't given rob should it have been given because we've already had a bit of an argument here well as you know i had the perfect view from uh, <coughs> only about 80 meters away on the opposite side of the pitch so uh, you know <laughs> Do you not have it, televisions next to you well no big screen it's it's not it's pretty um pretty basic in the in the state of france if there's any al- any element of doubt though the emphasis should be on a no try well it? i i think personally you have to have that the whole point of the video uh, expert video replay is to clear it up absolutely definitive evidence the referee look it looks like a try from the naked eye it looks like a try to me uh, now, if you slow it down, I, I have to say every replay I've seen, I, I'm still not sure in my mind. Cueto, Mark Cueto says that, uh, he said it a great quote, I thought, he said, it's, uh, until the day I die, I believe that's a try. And, uh, you know, if he, if he felt his winger's instincts, he felt he was inside the line. I think his left foot, as he's going, just lifts up. It's very close. I mean, we're talking absolute fractions. It really was close. Um, but if you're saying to me that Stuart Dickinson knew absolutely that was in touch, then I would, I would be a little bit sceptical. Neutral view, Chris? I didn't think it was a try. Um, just from looking at the repeated replays, uh, Stuart Dickinson's got a bit of a reputation for making line calls on, on, on big decisions like this, but he had to make the correct decision. And I, I think uh, one significant factor too was that the English players didn't go beyond the halfway line. There was some doubt, and that's probably because it went on and on and on. And usually in that situation, it's going to be awarded against the attacking side. So I have to say no try, which might have been a shame for the game. Yeah, it certainly would have made it very close, particularly the way that Johnny Wilkinson was kicking. If he'd kicked it from the touchline, it would have been, uh, I think it would have been 10-9. It would have been 10-9, it? Mm. I would be kicked. And then it would have been, you know, tit for tat, going the mm. other way, whereas the tactics changed. Anyway, uh, it didn't happen. Andy, what did you make of it? Yeah, I 
I have to say, I thought it was a no try as no well. No try. It pains me to say it, but there was just so much doubt there. In that case, like you say, it's going to go against the attacking team. Okay, let's just break off for a second because obviously we've been in Paris and we've been able to soak up the atmosphere. Let's just hear from some of the victorious fans who were at the big screen at the Eiffel Tower last night. It's so expensive for a South African to come over here and support this. us. We would come here, we would mortgage our houses to come here. Yeah. And here we are. In 93-94, Jake White was my PE coach. There was something special about him. He was always going to achieve, and he's done it. He has achieved the ultimate. We have achieved the ultimate. Two World Cups, winning in France. Very happy. Great game. Unfortunately, no tries. South Africa played a good game. England played a good game. Unfortunately, for England, we finished out on top, so... South Africa played well. I mean, a couple of decisions didn't go away, but honest to God, they deserve to win. I'm very happy there's South Africa. The referee's decision is final. We've got to deal with it. So as you can hear there, the, uh, the fans with some various opinions, the South Africans again, as they were before, they were very confident beforehand, and the English fans, I don't know, again, accepting defeat uh, and not having anyone to blame. In fact, Andy Bull, in your column, you wrote, defeat is so much easier to accept when you can blame someone. Was there anyone to blame this time? Yeah, I mean, a few people will try and blame the referee, but I think... What did he do wrong? Well, for me, the worst decision was the fifth penalty, actually, which he gave for obstruction. I mean, there just wasn't any obstruction there that I saw. That was a shocker. But, uh, you know, after the amount of stick we gave the Kiwis for complaining about the referee in their game, it'd be a little bit hypocritical for us now to start, you know, moaning on about the one we had. Back home in New Zealand, are the people still going on about the refereeing decisions against France? Uh, well, there was uh, uh, midweek, there was some call from the IRB that Wayne Barnes made three serious errors, but he's still OK and he was kind of a 7 out of 10 ref and he's still got a huge future. Um, I, I, think that, I think with that there was a bigger call back home for Wayne Barnes' head than, than there was from the journalists here in, in Paris uh, or, or in Cardiff at that stage. Um, Did you ever find out who this anonymous referee was back home in New Zealand who analysed his performance and said first half, yeah, 9 out of 10, second half, 6 out of 10 because he made all those errors? Is he, has he been unveiled yet? No, I could guess who it was, and I don't think I will guess on a British podcast publicly, but, uh, I, you know, it's a fair call. Wayne Barnes did have a shocker in that game. I thought Alain Roland was pretty good last night overall, but I, I do agree that obstruction call was um, definitely incorrect. There was no obstruction there, and that was crucial because that took yeah. the gap out to nine points, and then Johnny's drop goals were no longer really effective. Absolutely. Well, suddenly England had to do a running game, which, Rob, they haven't really been able to do, not just this tournament, but for several years. Well, but what they haven't been able to do is, is, is when they go behind to catch up, catch up rugby. You know, they just, they just, they struggle to do that, as you, as you say. They've, they've got out of the habit, basically. As, as frankly, if you watched Argentina and France on, uh, on a wonderful game on Friday night, Argentina played wonderful stuff. France said, "Okay, well, we can do this too." Uh, oh, hang on, we've forgotten how to do it. We, mm. you know, we, we traditionally be able to do it, but we've been so rigid, so straitjacketed um, that we've, you know, got out of the habit. And I, I think. Um, you know, but it, it's easy to say, oh, well, yeah, England, they should have turned it on. But if you, if you haven't done it in the previous 18, uh, 18 months, two years, two and a half years, then it's, it's asking a lot to do it in the biggest match of your life. Uh, blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport if you want to continue joining in with uh, our discussion here as you've been doing over the weeks. And again, thanks to all of you who've done it. We have had hundreds and hundreds. We've been overwhelmed by the response. Blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash sport is how you get in touch with us. Just um, a couple off the top here. 
this is from Milan in Italy, guest 1977, who says, Congratulations to South Africa. They really deserved it. They played better. They had a better streak to the World Cup. They never lost a single game in the whole tournament and not even got close to it. Very solid, not so spectacular side that uh, exactly knew what to do and when in most of the situations. Worthy world champions that took advantage also of other teams' failures. Wales against Fiji, France against Argentina, France against England, Australia against England, New Zealand against France. But it's part of the game. They took all their chances as a great team should. And they are. Uh, Forrester79 says, we've got worthy winners and good losers. England now rebuild and will never be uh, ridiculed again, they say. A good tournament all round, but probably the last under the present set of rules. Uh, and the final blog I have here, slightly negative one from Tangles in Sydney in Australia, but you'd expect that. Uh, what a snore fest. South Africa win their second World Cup and are still yet to score a try in the final. England never looked like getting close. The seas parted for South Africa in this World Cup. A pathetic England in the pool, a Pacific Island warm-up, a very limited Argentina in the semi. England again just a gift to them. Any Kiwis that even hinted at refereeing mistakes have been swiftly condemned as bad losers on these blogs. We've already had people whinging about a perfectly correct decision with the try last night. He was in touch. Well done, Stuart Dickinson. Are people still whinging back home in New Zealand? I don't think so. Uh, that's that's not a bad call, although um, the box were pushed very. Uh, the previous uh, block, the box were pushed very close by Tonga, and that for me was the game of the tournament for a couple of reasons: is that a world power was challenged by an emerging nation, and the Tongans have been thrashed by eighty to hundred points. That was a fa- that for the. But there was a, but it was a but it was a South African second team they put out, wasn't it? Well, no, they put on their big gun. But at the, the, at the end, they had to, and then yeah. they won. And and the Tongans played fantastically structured rugby, and and that is a real step forward for the IRB. If we're doing this post-tournament yeah. analysis, for the IRB's uh, vision to globalise the game and get more teams on that top tier. So f- for me, that was the game of the tournament. Well, all the journalists that I've been reading have the, have been talking in terms of reducing the World Cup to sixteen teams in the final but I believe you've got some inside knowledge on that it may not happen yes well it's obviously quite a matter quite close to my heart being a Kiwi and given the fact in four years I'll be seeing you lot over there I'll have to do a podcast over there we'll do podcasts wherever you want we'll (laughs) do one on a 747 if you like but I, I've uh, been talking to a lot of the powers that be, uh, the Martin Snedens, the Jokovs, and, and uh, I, I think the indication is the IRB is holding a meeting 25 to 27 of November uh, in London and uh, um, the indication is it will be 20 teams because of the, the wider rationale of, of expanding the world game. I think for 16 teams, teams like Japan will miss out and the TV audience for rugby there and, and the potential for revenue is huge. So I can't see them doing it. Uh, by the way, if you're wondering why we haven't got a South African voice, we are going to speak to uh, a regular contributor, Andy Colhoun from South African Broadcasting Corporation. He can't actually be around the table at the moment because he's at Jake White's press conference as we speak and we felt it was kind of more important that he did that than do this, although this is, you know, one of the most important things a man can do. But we will be speaking to Andy Colhoun, I promise you, in this podcast. Just do, hang, do hang around for that. Uh, we've already spoken to him this morning. He says there's an air of calm rather than celebration, which I'd quite like to expand on. Um, do you think, Rob, that, that the, the World Cup should expand, should, uh, should become smaller, or do you believe that it will stay as it is? Well, it's quite interesting. My information is slightly different to, to what you just heard. I think that they've pre- they had pretty much made the decision to go to 16 teams uh, before, the, before the tournament started. And I think just purely by the evidence of what they've seen, they've, they've, imagine if they were to, to cut out some of the sides that we've seen that's given 
so much to this tournament, which which has been one of the one of the best tournaments. Never mind the, the final, the, the the tournament as a whole has been a fantastic event. Uh, it really has taken rugby to a wider wider audience, and I, I just don't see. I have to say, I don't see any way that uh, that the public or you know any or the media would allow them to. Uh, Cut it to 16 teams. I think they'd love to. I think that you know, New Zealand, with all with all due respect, there's n not a huge number of hotels there. I think the infrastructure to to uh, deal with a with a World Cup is, as they would admit themselves, is 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 uh, not necessarily uh, as great as, as somewhere like uh, France or, or even Japan who missed out. So I think it's going to be, you know, it would make life easier for them. But they did tender originally on the basis of a 20-team tournament, uh, and I think they may have to stick with that. From, from a rugby sense too, uh, we, we keep getting easy. Well, the All Blacks keep getting easy pulls, and maybe the 16-team <laughs> format might change it. I don't know. You need difficult matches. That's one of That's your right. downfalls, was, isn't it? You uh, I mean, uh, well, we'll analyse it later. But there well, now analyse it now. Go for it. What do you What do you think? Why? Uh, why? It was a concertina effect with the tournament favourites. They had easy games. Scotland put out not a B team, a C team. Mm. We won that game 14-0 and played poor rugby, and that was supposed to be. I mean, the All Blacks did play, and that was supposed to be the the, the toughest game for New Zealand. And then a uh, couple of injuries. Uh, Dan Carter, obviously, uh, still not right for the big game. He went off injured because he had to do so much damn kicking, which we've seen a lot in the aerial <laughs> ping pong that Millennials. I didn't pop the end of no, into Millennium Stadium, and uh, and then Nick Evans came on, looked dangerous. He went off injured, pulled his hammy. You know, it just went on and on and on. The, the sin binning, and um, yeah, I can remember actually, and and it and it doesn't hurt quite so much now. No, but I can remember every single second of that second half. It just it, it's for for New Zealanders, just like the English last in, night in slow motion. Exactly, and and I can remember they were camped on the line right down on that far left corner and uh, and they should have spun it out wide they had a five on three overlap and they they lacked the vision that that was the disappointment so the big question is are you chokers well i'll tell you there's a famous broadcaster in new zealand who i won't name because he works for the opposition but he uh, was going to write a book it was all written this is public knowledge and he's going to write a book world cup champions at last or something like that he's changed the title to chokers has he <laughs> Do you think it'll sell many? <laughs> Might his family, mate. Probably in London. Are yeah. they chokers? And if so, why? Uh, I say they, you, we, uh, yeah. whatever. We, yeah. You in particular. <laughs> yeah, so. Oh, me. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I've, I've, I feel that they do lack the... I, I thought that the All Blacks had turned the corner when they ground out that Tri-Nations uh, Bledisloe victory at Eden Park over, over a pretty strong Wallabies side. I thought they'd turned the corner and, 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 and learned how to win games ugly. But this tournament proved it wrong. To be fair, I think they were trying to win that game ugly against France, were they? In the second half, they played such ugly rugby by their standards, mm. and it was clearly a sort of default setting. They had been prepared. If you're in this situation, this is what you've got to do. Keep it ugly. Keep it simple. Drive for the line. They did that, and France were just... The defence was too good. It's Maybe there were a couple of referee calls that didn't go for them, but France's defence was epic on that night. It's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I think New Zealand, they also picked the wrong team. They picked quite a defensive-minded team in the way, you know, Robinson in the second row... Muliaia in the centre. You know, it was a, it was sort of a oh hey we can't make a mistake. It was um, it was that sort of type. Similar to France, they didn't play when when the moment came, they they, they just didn't trust their instincts. And I think that's been a, a big feature of this World Cup. You know, South Africa, okay in the final they they, they shut up shop and they had a fantastic defence. But as we've seen earlier in the tournament, Habana, Stain, they were prepared to to give it a go. And I think in the end, in the end, we can talk about. Little things that make the difference, but that was what perhaps raised them above a couple of the other sides. What, so, what have we learned from this World Cup, and, and how has it changed over the years? Um, 
for example, defences win matches? Is, is, is that a simple mantra? That's certainly what Jake White was saying at his press conference last night. I mean, he said, four years I've been saying nothing but defence is going to win us this World Cup. And uh, right now he's the man you've got to be listening to. So. It was awesome, the defence last night. It was, it was brutal. Mm. So, so was England. I mean, you know, you ha- you'd have to say both sides were fantastic. I, think, I don't think it's quite that simple. I think uh, it, it's easy to say, oh, well, we keep saying this every four years, defence, it's the only thing that matters. It, did, it does matter, of course it matters, it's 50% of the game, but I don't think it's necessarily as overwhelmingly, or will prove to be in the next three or four years. As you rightly say, the rules, the laws are going to be um, looked at. I'm not sure they're going to be massively changed, but there will be just little tweaks here and there to, to try and um, encourage perhaps a little bit more passing as opposed to the aerial ping-pong, if you want to, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that, you know, that's no bad thing, uh, in, in, as long as it doesn't, uh, if you pull one thread, often sometimes the, the whole sure. carpet falls yeah. apart. A- Eddie Jones, in a very good news conference. Eddie Jones should be a, a podcaster, actually. He is brilliant. Uh, but he, he said there that... Are you doubting the rest of us? Yeah. <laughs> no, probably myself. <laughs> I'm a choker. <laughs> no, uh, Eddie Jones said it's back to the future for rugby. It's like early 90s all over again. That's, that's the way rugby's gone. What does he mean? What do you mean back to the future, back to the early 90s? In yeah. terms of what? How in, you play? In, ter- in terms of defence wins games, uh, d- um, you know, kick, uh, kicks and penalties win games, drop goals win games. It's, the, it's not tries and enterprise at the Super 14 obviously changed the game in the, in the late 90s a little bit. Uh, I think, I think it, it, it just matters. What comes over to me is it how much it matters. It matters hugely to, to South Africa, clearly matters to England. That's what got them you know, off their, off their backsides, if you like. Uh, New Zealand, it mattered too much, didn't it? And, and, mm. and it's how you deal with that, with that all-pervasive choking pressure Sorry to use that word again. <laughs> uh, this it, book's going to sell, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the makes a difference. It, it, it really is. And that's where I think uh, sides have come out on top. Now, I know South Africa uh, have come out, but a lot of their players, if you look at them, very experienced players, have played a, around the world a, a little bit more, actually, some of them than, than uh, even the oh, Percy, New Zealanders. Instance, well, you know, Percy, there's, there's obviously a whole raft going over to, to Europe now. These guys have played in a lot of situations, often in, in not particularly good sides. Springboks had a terrible year in '96, and they've come back. People forget, you know, as, as they were manoeuvring and, and trying to get in the right position. And it's, it's, it's been—I think—it's been a fascinating World Cup in many ways. It, it, it is a shame that, that the final won't necessarily have added many more uh, new neutral fans to the to the the, the, the constituency of, of, of rugby people, but. I think overall, as I say, you have to take this this, this tournament in the round. Yeah, Andy, what's, what will be your memory of the, uh, the the Rugby World Cup 2007 and maybe its legacy? Uh, I hope the legacy is seeing the smaller teams coming through. I mean, Fiji we've seen make you know, not big improvements because they were good in the early 90s as well, but the way they played really showed promise. Tonga as well. Um, so for me, if anything comes out of it, I'd like it to be that. Argentina as well are obviously a team you want to see carrying on. What do we do with Argentina now? What, what happens to Argentina? Well, logistically, it's, it's tricky. Most of their players are based with clubs in Europe, so to, for them to go and join the Tri-Nations would be impractical for them. Uh, to join the Six Nations is going to be, in its current form, is tricky because you can't have so many games. You'd have so many games, it would last for months. So I, I think, they, they, as you say, they're having a summit at the international board next, uh, next month, and they will look at a, a range of options. I personally would go towards something formalising the the current tours, which are a bit hit and miss. People send weekend sides. It's wrong time of the year for one. We all know that. We all know that uh, scenario. I would try and formalise that perhaps into a sort of Davis Cup type scenario, where your 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 
maybe based on the world rankings, number one plays number eight, two plays seven. Uh, uh, you know, you can imagine the, the the way it would go. Building towards a final, it would be in June, um, relegation as well, and that way, every side all the way through would have a would have um, a sort of formal contact. How would that go down in New Zealand? Do you think? Not very well. Not very well. No, sorry. It's a good idea because it gets more teams involved. But how would you like to see rugby go then? Then, in the future, how will oh, change? And what about Argentina and the, the well, general I, hierarchy? I thought Argentina played, by the way, fantastic rugby on Friday night, that, that, and that they showed something special uh, attacking-wise as well as defense, defensively. Um, and uh, yeah, they're a team that deserve. They're ranked third in the world now. Is that right? Third or fourth? Uh, I haven't looked at the latest rankings. We would be yeah, up there. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, they have. Where to are England involved. ranked now? Well, they were seventh before we started, <laughs> so you would think slightly, um, slightly higher. Uh, I don't know. The rankings come out tomorrow. Fourth or fifth, maybe. Yeah, I think right up to fifth. A steady fifth. A steady fifth. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just finish then uh, our discussion with uh, our three men uh, round the table. Rob Kitson from The Guardian as a rugby correspondent and Andy Bull from Guardian Unlimited and also New Zealand's Radio Live's Chris Forster. Uh, what will be your abiding memory in terms of the one thing that you'll take away with you, Rob, from this tournament? Anything stand to, out? To be honest, it was Fiji versus South Africa in Marseille and it was one of those games. The first half had been so-so and we thought, well, well I mean, what will happen next? And Fiji, for the 10 minutes, they're down to 14 men. They scored two tries. South Africa are wobbling like mad. It was absolutely fantastic to, 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 watch, to watch that. And that eventually, I mean, it is. It's things that lift, lift you out of your seat. The old thing, hairs on the back of the neck. And it was wonderful. Andy? Yeah, well, sorry to be on a similar theme, but then the week before, Wales-Fiji. That was out of this world. That was an absolutely extraordinary game. The other match I'd look to is the France-New Zealand semi-final, the second half of which, for me, was some of the best sport I've seen since the Ashes in 2005. Wow. Chris? Yeah, tension-wise, uh, Millennium Stadium. That's, uh, but it was, it was so hard to watch that game, uh, even as a, a supposedly impartial journalist, because I'm a New Zealander. It really was hard to watch, and you knew, 10 minutes out from the end, we're going to lose this. I said it to my colleague, I looked at him, we're going to lose. Incredible. Yeah, uh, for emotions, I have to go with that one. And what about the, uh, the, the, the away strip of the New Zealanders? Well, that didn't help. <laughs> Will they ever wear it again? <laughs> what, the silver and grain? Yeah, that? whatever it was. <laughs> the thing that looked like Scotland, but it was New Zealand. Yeah, no, I don't think we'll uh, ever see that on, on a world rugby field again. I, yeah. I would hope not. That was, that was a disgrace. What about your experiences um, being in Paris and, and being in France? What have you made of the tournament as a whole? I know it's been slightly fragmented with a couple of games in, it, uh, in Scotland and a couple of games in Cardiff, but overall it has been a French World Cup, hasn't it? I, I think they've organised it fantastically and <coughs> it's an absolute tribute to... Uh, to the well, to the to the French organising committee, it started. They were a little bit things were a little bit um, rough and ready on the first night. France Argentina has to be said. I, I think not sure they were quite ready at that point. The rest has been wonderful. The weather's been sensational. Uh, the food's been obviously terrible, uh, <laughs> uh, and we've uh, we've had a great time. Best meal. <laughs> <laughs> too many. Them, too many. Them them Andy, what's, what about you? What about the whole the tournament as a oh, whole? Maybe things you've seen. Things you didn't expect to see. I, I remember seeing a, a Welshman feed a police horse beer in a. <laughs> in Nome. That was quite confusing. But uh, yeah, the organisation's been superb. The number of volunteers around, they've been fantastic as well. It's been really easy to get information. I mean, it's very hard to get lost. The one, one blight for me was last night and getting the metro to the ground. It was absolute hell. It really was. And there were thousands and thousands of Englishmen 
all drunk. So all drunk and in a furious mood. And it was like it was like the black hole of Calcutta on wheels. It was that bad. It was yeah. just terrible. It's like watching England's football team away. <laughs> it's beginning to get like that. I have to say that there were some rowdy English fans around, but I think they just about kept it in check. Right, final uh, word f- from this discussion, because we'll be speaking to the uh, man who represents the world champions in just a second. But first of all, from uh, our guest from overseas, New Zealand's Radio Live's Chris Forster. Chris, your abiding memory of this tournament? The French people, fantastic. It really was a great tournament. Um, the best ever, Sid Miller called it, in true Olympian style. Yeah, they always do. And, but I think it was. Uh, maybe the final let it down a little bit, but uh, the, the French people were fantastic, particularly in Marseille. I loved my time in Marseille, and I went to a little uh, a little bar there that they renamed Little Canterbury, and, and it was after a social uh, afternoon of rugby, and they had the world's biggest paella plate. It was honestly, <laughs> it was so big, and it was still beautiful. Sorry to argue with the, uh, the, the toss about the food here. Well, yeah. listen, boys, we've really enjoyed the tournament, and I hope you've enjoyed all the, uh, the podcasts that uh, we've done over the weeks. I've certainly thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing. My thanks to all our guests throughout the weeks and to uh, the trio around the table here in the Bowler pub in uh, the middle of Paris, rugby correspondent of The Guardian, Rob Kitson, uh, Andy Bull from Guardian Unlimited and Chris Forster from New Zealand's Radio Live. Just a last word to you, Chris. What will it be like in four years' time? What can we expect? Because I remember doing a Commonwealth Games in, uh, in Auckland. 1990. It, yeah, it was one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life because everyone was so friendly, so just, just so unbelievably available to help you in any possible way. Nothing was too much trouble. Will we're it be the friend- same again? We're a friendly bunch, and, and we've also become quite a cosmopolitan uh, nation since in, in the 17 years, believe it or not. Really? We're a long way away, I know. But Are they still racing those 1950s cars up Queen Street yeah, in Auckland? Yeah, we're doing that, trams and uh, everything. No, no, uh, I, think, I think Auckland's got some infrastructural issues to deal with, and that's where Eden Park's going to be the main stadium. So uh, watch the space on that. But I think as uh, people will match the French. It's a long way to come if you live in Europe, but well worth going, believe Definitely. you me. Guardian Unlimited, the Rugby World Cup show, sponsored by Magnus. Well, I'm back. This is Ian Payne again with the latest Rugby Union World Cup podcast from Paris. And uh, we've moved from the Champs-Élysées quite a way south in Paris and we've come to the wonderful Sofitel Hotel here in Paris because this is where the uh, South African team have been staying and they obviously had a victorious party last night I've been joined not just by one but by two feel the width of uh, the South Africa's finest uh, journalists Andy Colquhoun who's a regular contributor to these podcasts from SABC and Craig Ray who's also joined us he's the rugby correspondent for the Times newspaper in South Africa Andy what's the uh, what's the emotion like the morning after uh, I think there's a lot of tired people around at the moment because uh, it was uh, an emotional seven or eight weeks. It's been an emotional four years for Jake White um, with the trials and tribulations that he's been through. So it's more a, a profound feeling of, of relief, I think, than, than any outrageous celebrations. I think if we'd been playing the All Blacks and beaten them, it'd be very different now. What um, are you saying? <laughs> How dare you? Is it easy to beat England? We're not, we're not too sure who we're saying. I would say that the second best team in the tournament was Argentina and that if Argentina had been playing England in the final, that the, the, the Pumas would probably have won as well. I'm not trying to um, disrespect to be disrespectful to England, but I think that's just the way it is. 
um, that the, the sides that were the strongest in the collisions are the sides that have come through, and that was England and South Africa are here, but the Pumas were strong. So, yeah, a feeling of relief. I think it's probably similar to England in 2003, that they knew they were the best team and they knew they should win it, and when they did, they weren't so much excited as just uh, grateful that they delivered on what they'd promised. I think it hits home if, if our experience, like I say, are by English experiences, is anything to go by. When you get home, and you realise just how much it means to everyone at home, that's when it hits you, and that's when the elation really kicks in. Because, as you say, it's been a long, hard slog, and it's, it's a mixture of relief and just sheer exhaustion, I would have thought. Um, Craig, I think that's what the players... Sorry, I think yeah. that's what the players have been saying yes. as well, that they, they're so they're eager to get back. They want to see what's happening in South Africa. They've been hearing about it. It's been, the, the country has been turned completely green. Uh, for this last week. Um, you saw what happened yesterday when the president was there. He was hoisted on the shoulders of the players. Um, the, everyone has taken full part in the celebrations and the players are just dying to get home to, to, to feel it for themselves. And when the president was hoisted on the shoulders, was that something that you think he... He wanted. Did he look? Did he look like he was enjoying it to you? Well, he's got a reputation for being sort of diffident and reserved. Mm. He's not um, the populist leader that, that African leaders often are. That he is uh, very standoffish, if you like. But uh, from our perspective, he seemed to be pretty much um, taking full part in the celebrations, which uh, was interesting. Um, Craig, I'm, I'm talking to you not just as the uh, rugby correspondent for the Times newspaper in South Africa, but also as Jake White's biographer. And we actually interrupted you um, on your laptop, just penning, well, I wouldn't say it's the final chapter, but how far on are you with this book? Well, pretty much uh, nearly there. I mean, we do have to work on the, the final chapter, last night's game, but also just a few bits and pieces for the World Cup. But, uh, you know, I think it's going to be about 120,000-odd words and probably got about 118,000 <laughs> down, so it's going to run over a little bit. So obviously you've been talking to him, what, through this this tournament and you've been pretty close to him what's his mindset been to, because to all of us watching him he's been so calm and he hasn't been calm at all he's been a bundle of nerves really yeah he's uh, you know away from the prying eyes he's he's been under tremendous stress i mean i suppose the, the world cup for him has been a, a, a valediction of, of of some of his policies and uh, almost an up yours to some of his bosses. Which, what, what are his policies and what are well, the I mean, policies of his bosses that he goes well, he's against? Always, he's always gone for bigger players in the best positions. He always choose the b- good big guy over the good little guy and he's always said size matters, fitness matters, experience matters and he's, uh, and he's worked hard to gain that. Last night Springbok team had 668 caps the most experienced Springbok team ever and he said by the time, four years ago he said by the time we get to the World Cup we need to have experience and he's had to fight hard because there's been political pressure to select certain players over more experienced players or players he was trying to to use to gain experience. So there's always been constant selection battles behind the scenes. Not so much at the World Cup. I think he was allowed to do what he what he wanted once he had his 30. But then the pressure of the World Cup took over, and then the pressure of proving uh, to everyone and to himself that his that his uh, policy was the way the, the way to win a World Cup. So what happens now? Because if um, if you listen to some of the, the the forecasters of some would say doom, some would say optimism of the future they would say that there's going to be a lot of pressure on on the selectors now to choose a certain type of player. You can't just pick who Jake White wanted in the future. Maybe, but uh, I think when you have winning momentum at a World Cup and you've got the, this group of players that has won a World Cup, and I would guess probably 24 out of the 30 will be available over the next few years, it's going to be hard to discard them with the public sort of feeling back home. So the politicians are going to have to do some hard thinking about how they're going to package the whole um, the team plus trying to find more black players to come through, which is important. And I think uh, Jake White even acknowledges that. And you know he has tried over the years to find the certain players, but if they're not coming through at provincial and Super 14 level, 
um, you know, the Springbok coach is always going to be on a hiding to nothing. So it's up to, uh, I think, uh, South African rugby administrators to ensure that we get a lot of black players coming through the Curry Cup system and into the Super 14. So what happens in the next chapter for Jake White? Does he leave the team now? He's not carrying on, is he? I, I really don't have the answer to that because I don't think he has the answer to that either. His contract goes till the end of the year. And um, I was saying to Andy actually last night, he, he'll probably change his mind now and want to stay on because the euphoria of winning and I'm sure you feel good and, and, and suddenly you're on top of the world and everyone loves you. He even said this morning in the press conference, he said, it's easy to sit here and talk about staying on when you've, uh, when you've just won, but it's when you're losing, when you're suddenly all alone that you, uh, you wonder if it's worth it. So I don't think he'll stay on is my gut feel, but uh, he has been known to change his mind and it's also whether SA Rugby wants him. What do you think, Andy, will happen to the future of South African rugby? Do you think there'll be a lot more pressure on selectors to pick more black players, frankly? There is, there is pressure, but the, the, the interesting thing about covering South African rugby is that you never really know what's going to happen next. And that I can imagine that if we get to March and April, which is the middle of the uh, Super 14 uh, competition in the Southern Hemisphere, that if, if the uh, South African teams are still largely white and are playing maybe just two or three black players in the five South African squads, there'll be huge political pressure regardless of what's happened here. And in the last 24 hours since they won the trophy, even last night, the players, some of them are already talking about what's going to happen next and whether they'll be allowed to, to build on this legacy because this is a team that's really just starting. I know we've had four years building here, but as Craig said, um, with uh, 24 of this group can go on for another four years at least. There's, there's some who can go on for another two World Cups. But um, in the ever-changing, ever-interesting world of South African rugby, we really, really don't know what's going to happen next. Is it almost a shame, do you feel, Craig, that uh, you didn't play New Zealand in the final or maybe France or Australia? Was there a feeling that you actually almost had an easy passage to winning this trophy? I don't think there's an easy passage to winning the World Cup. You've got to beat the team that beat the team. And South Africa had to beat England in the final. They beat France, who beat New Zealand, and England beat Australia. So, so what did you make of, of England? Because a lot of people said South Africa out England, England, if that's a phrase. Last night? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think they probably did. If, if they, they, they won the collisions, they won the contact areas, they at least had parity in the scrum. Uh, and, and they the dominated defense. the line-outs. So, and the defence was amazing. So, yeah, I think they played England at their own game and beat them. And... 36 days ago they, they played their game and beat England 36-0 so I think they sort of proved something to themselves there. Have you enjoyed this tournament? I know you're both pretty shattered <laughs> by the whole experience but I'm sure when you get home and reflect on it will there be particular memories, things you've seen, p- things you've heard that will stick in your mind? I think the, uh, one of the nicest things has been the, the, the French attitude to the tournament, the way they've embraced it. I mean just going into the stadiums and seeing them full on a, every single match that I've been to has been fantastic. Um, the fact that it's been played for, for us in one country, we've not been to Scotland, we've not been to Wales, that, that has been important. Um, Australia was a great tournament as well. I, I really enjoyed Australia. I think the fact that it was in the English language, it took place in an English language culture, that allowed us to be more involved. Um, I think here, if uh, you don't have uh, good French language skills, then you're slightly excluded and you, you follow the tournament in a bubble. We spent a lot of time in Paris, which is, is marvellous. Mm-hmm. But um, it was when we met, got to Marseille and Montpellier and Lens, um, away from the big city, that you really felt it. So I think it's been a, a wonderful World Cup, particularly for the results, of course, because uh, we've seen so many upsets. It's been such an unpredictable tournament. That's always been uh, rugby's Achilles heel, that you generally know the tie that's got the really the biggest and the fastest players will win. But in this tournament we've seen that um, kind of thrown out the window by, by different styles. 
Food's not bad, is it? <laughs> Food isn't bad, actually. I, I, Craig's, I, I, wine, Craig's girlfriend is a wine writer. And a <laughs> is she? I had, she came over for a bit, and I actually was very lucky. I had some great food experiences. Went to one, two, and three Michelin-starred restaurants and, and tried that out. We managed to go down to El Bulli in Spain, which is allegedly the world's number one restaurant, and got a booking there, which was great. So, yeah, Fantastic. the food was good. Yeah, we had a good time. So you're tired, but... Uh, mm. Tired, but full. Tired, <laughs> well but fed. full. <laughs> Listen, congratulations. I think it's fair to say that the best team did win in the end. You, you're the only side that didn't win. You're the only side that didn't lose a match in the entire tournament, so I suppose that says something about it. How do you feel the uh, the team will build from here, and what kind of South African team will we get in four years' time, finally? Well, again, it's the wonderful world of South African rugby politics. If, if they manage to be able to choose the team they want, I think we'll have a better team. The bulk of the side will be more experienced. I think probably 20 of them should be around in four years' time. Um, and if they you know, have the right coaching staff, and it probably won't be Jake White, but there's a lot of other good candidates, there's no reason why they can't actually go on to, I don't know, entirely dominate world rugby, but certainly be one of the dominant forces over the next four years. Did I hear right, though? Did I hear Jake White saying he'd love to coach in England? I don't know if he said that. I, he hasn't said that to me. I'm sure, I'm sure he... He said it to me. Well, there we go. <laughs> but uh, I think he would like to coach in England. England are a, a massive pool of players, a lot of talent. And if you're serious about trying to win a World Cup, you want to coach teams that have a chance. And I think there's maybe only five or six teams in the world that probably have a chance with the player depth. And England's right up there in the top three. And we've seen lots of All Blacks in their prime, not just the people finishing their careers who are coming over to play in the Guinness Premiership and elsewhere. Do you think we'll, do you think we'll see South Africans as well? Well, that's a big issue for South Africa at the moment. There's a rule in place which says that if you play overseas, you can't, uh, you can't play for the Springboks. There's Is a that drive, right? At the moment, there's a drive to have that rule changed so that Victor Matfield and John Smith and Percy Montgomery, who will be playing in Europe after this tournament, can come back to South Africa. To me, that's a threat, though, because if you, if you change that rule, there's a lot of South Africans in this squad who would be, uh, maybe not rushing, but would be coming pretty quickly to, uh, to France to take the really big bucks. So Scott Berger, Fareed Jupria, uh, Franz Stein, they would then become targets. So I hope that rule stays in place. OK, boys, congratulations. Thanks very much, for Andy, for talking to us throughout the weeks and for Craig for joining us at such short notice. Wish the coach good luck. Maybe we'll see him in England sometime. Congratulations to South Africa. So our thanks to our guests and thanks to uh, all our guests over the last few weeks on these Rugby World Cup podcasts. This is uh, Ian Payne signing off on a wonderfully crisp blue-skied morning here in Paris, which I think basically is a metaphor for the, uh, for the tournament as a whole, which has provided uh, some of the greatest upsets we've ever seen in the Rugby World Cup and has uh, certainly stimulated some of the best and most exciting debates. Thanks to all of you who've taken the time and trouble to get in touch with us via the blogs. It's been well worth it, and we really appreciate it. Thank you, and uh, see you next time. This is Ian Peng saying adieu from France. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Rugby World Cup Show. Sponsored by Magnus. Time to play. Go to magnuscider.com. <laughs>